0: Haggai chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the twenty-fourth day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. In the seventh month, on the twenty-first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. How many of you have ever watched a TV series purely on the strength of somebody's recommendation, right? That's how we usually find it. We don't flip channels anymore. Since we stream everything, we need recommendations, right? That's the best way to find something worth watching. That's how we discovered Tiger King. If Ken had not told us about Tiger King, we wouldn't have watched it, you know? Now, I try not to take too many recommendations anymore, largely because I might like it, and I don't have that kind of time for a whole other series. I don't have the time to invest. Like, George and I, we already did this. We, we got hooked on Twenty Four. We did Deadwood, we did The Office, we did 30 Rock, and of course, Tiger King. I have refused now for years to watch Breaking Bad, despite many recommendations that it is the best TV show that was ever made, precisely because I'm afraid it might be true. Now, there are other times where I have ignored recommendations from people, because I don't trust the source. Uh, my, My good friend, Pastor Tim Gorby of the Easton Church, our sister church over there, he's a wonderful man. Uh, He has recommended several shows, but I have not watched any of them yet, and that's because he and his lovely wife uh, simply love the show Friends, and I feel like Friends people have lost the right to recommend TV shows. I'm not even entirely sure Tim should be eligible for ministry. There's got to be something in the BCO about it, but... but if you have had somebody recommend a TV show series, or, or or even a book series, it doesn't matter, maybe you have had one where you absolutely hated it, like right off the bat. Ever happened to you? Yeah. Okay. And, and then eventually they ask, how'd you like it, right? And and you're like, you know, Hammond and Holland, and eventually you tell them, like, you're not really that impressed, and you're trying to be polite, but basically you're saying, like, this is awful, what's wrong with you, why did you recommend this? Why did you waste my time? I'll never get those hours back. And... Like I said, the same thing can happen with books. We're, we're reading right now. Uh, we just finished it, thankfully, this week. Um, reading aloud to the kids. Madeline Langle's, uh, one of her Time books, I think it's the second one, and we have discovered they are simply awful read-aloud books. Um, that's Grace's fault. She recommended it. Um, but, <laughs> but anyway, but when you mention this to people, that you don't like this, this series that they've recommended, right, whatever it is, there is a universal response that you get from them. What do they always say when you tell them, like, this is awful? What do they say? Keep watching. Why? It gets better. They all swear by this. It gets better. Just suffer through the first season. It really starts to warm up in season two, you know, and... Even with our book series, Grace was guilty of this, too. Book three was my favorite, really. So it's like now we're like hemming and hawing. Are we going to do this thing or not, you know? And and the result is that I just don't believe people anymore. Uh, And even if I did, I I don't want to wait till season four for it to warm up. You know, like I want the show to be good now. Uh, I don't have endless time to waste on bad television. Georgia would dispute that comment. I do watch Lawrence Welk sometimes on Saturday nights. I must have some time to waste, but you know, not 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 endless time to waste. Anyway, in today's passage, this this next section of Haggai, we, we hear from God that it gets better, and I like to think that God is a more reliable source than than grace or most of my friends. And uh, the TV critics, in in fairness, I I don't need to waste my time on shows. I mean, that's something trivial. Like, you know, I don't have to wait three seasons for that to get good. It's not worth my time. But in life (laughs) and in redemptive history, the story that God is telling, he says that it gets better, which is really good news because he's not just telling you his opinion or what he thinks is going to happen. He's not making a prediction. He already wrote the script. So we know that it's going to happen. And as your mother always said, good things come to those who wait. But as Inigo Montoya once said, I hate waiting. My mother also said that the watched pot never boils. That can't possibly be true. Um, In fact, in my experience, an unwatched boil tends to boil over and burn the stove. Um, But the message of Haggai is that the pot will boil and it will overflow in a good way. It gets better and better and the wait will be worth it. And so much of our walk with Christ really comes down to waiting, doesn't it? Waiting on God. And we don't always love that. But it helps to know that there is glory at the end, that we're going somewhere. And that, as the song said, that our labor is not in vain. And that was just as true for the Jews who were living in the rubble of Jerusalem. They were disillusioned by all the setbacks. We've talked a great deal about those. If you want to think of it this way, like this show has been disappointing. Season one was kind of okay, but every season since then has been lousy, right? Uh, They don't like waiting any more than we do. And uh, they've just about given up on anything changing. But God says through Haggai that it will change. It does get better. But sometimes things don't get better until you take your medicine. Mom probably taught you that, too. Uh, so, you know, we saw last week that Haggai had some harsh words for, for the people here. Uh, God's people had gotten pretty used to feeling sorry for themselves. There's a lot of self-pity going on. Uh, Haggai comes along and tells them, like, uh, no, you guys are busy getting fat, uh, and you're not satisfied. But in the meantime, you're ignoring the mission. Uh, and Haggai seems to do an unimaginable thing by today's standards. It sounds like he's blaming the victim. Um, That's not recommended in most counseling situations, but Haggai basically says, like, you've become indifferent. Uh, A major setback that was real has become an excuse to do nothing. And and worse than that, you've actually stayed very busy, but you've been working on your own houses. So Haggai calls them out, uh, gives them the proverbial smack upside the head, and invites them to examine themselves and what they're doing, how they're living. And we began to see at the end of last week's message... That the Jews did respond. And I want to look at that last section again in a little more depth because we only kind of touched it last week. Look at verse 12. It says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. So, again, we see that starting with the leadership, the people respond. Haggai's preaching. Uh, Preaching leads to conviction, which leads to fear of the Lord and obedience. Uh, That is what conviction of sin is supposed to do. It is certainly not supposed to make you defensive, though that is our natural tendency a lot of the time. Uh, It's not supposed to lead you deeper into self-pity either. It's supposed to lead to godly sorrow, a proper fear or respect of the Lord. That's what repentance looks like. And How does God respond to this repentance in verse 13? It says, then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the first thing I I don't want you to miss here, it starts with the repentance here, but God moves toward repentant sinners. That's his default setting. His first words, after they respond with repentance, they haven't actually fixed anything. They're just still a mess. They're just, they're repentant. And his first words are, I am with you. He does not hold us at arm's length, and he does not hold a grudge. Now, most of us can testify that sin has an an alienating effect between us and God. I think we've all experienced that. Sin is ugly. Sin is messy. It is dirty. It is unattractive. And God has very strong feelings about sin. He doesn't like to touch it. And yet he does not recoil from repentant sinners. He is faithful and just to forgive. He does not stay distant when you have messed up. He confronts you in your sin, but when you repent, he draws near. He moves toward repentant sinners. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 14. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. So when we read that God draws near to those who repent, he doesn't just come near and then sit there quietly and pleasantly. He starts working. What he does is he gets you excited again. And I love this language here because I I have to figure, like, Zerubbabel and Joshua, they're not getting any younger here, right? Like, this project started a ways back. Uh, It's been a few years. They've been kind of sitting around. They're sitting in their cedar-paneled houses, developing a beer gut, perfecting their dad bod, and God comes in and stirs their spirit up. It, it, It makes me think of those those. TV ads for medications, right? And, and, and you, you see them on at late night when, you know, between Lawrence Welk or whatever. And um, uh, there's always, like, a ton of side effects that are, like, horrifying and sound far worse than whatever you were taking it for to begin with, right? But my, 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 some of my favorite ones are for the male uh, <clears throat> virility treatments. And the best one is, like, you know, you got the couple watching uh, the sunset in separate tubs. And, and they, they always say, like, ask your doctor if your heart is healthy enough for such activity. And I don't know how old Zerubbabel and Joshua are, but, like, they've been leading this expedition for a while. They've gotten fat and lazy, like all the people. Like, everyone's getting fat except Mama Cass. Nobody gets that reference. I don't know why I bother with the 60s music things. I'm sorry. Anyway, Zerubbabel and Joshua, they're sitting around. They're getting older and lazier by the day. And, like, a second wind is kind of an unlikely thing to just happen at this point. Like, reviving this project seems further and further from reality. You don't get... A second wind to chase your dreams with the energy of your youth. Like some people try. That's what like a midlife crisis looks like. But that doesn't work for like an entire nation. You're not going to stir the whole nation to a midlife crisis. Unfinished projects tend to remain that way. Uh, they become a millstone and a burden. I, I, I Unfinished projects in my life become like legendary eventually because they sit there long enough and it becomes like a, a like a pet almost, you know. Georgia made a, uh, started to make her first, she made her wedding dress, but she made a wedding dress before her wedding dress that that failed, and uh, I don't know, she made a mistake, and it sat in a bucket, and we traveled and brought it around with us like Joseph's bones for years, Um, and like 15 years into marriage, she finally just threw it out, you know? Um, I have a huge slate chalkboard in my garage that somebody gave me, and it's just like, I I'm going to get around to this thing. I'm going to hang it somewhere. I don't know. But, you know, it's like there's never a good time to start it. And so you find a place out of the way and you ignore it for years, you know. And then the very memory of it becomes frustrating. That's the status of the temple. Every day you look at it and it's like, well, you step over the stones and you keep walking. But God stirs up the spirit of repentant sinners. He gets them excited again. He gets their heart cranking. He gives them the strength to move on. He breathes new life into depressed, complacent, selfish hearts. He takes bored, complacent, and sluggish people, and he makes them excited again. That's what God is doing for Zerubbabel and Joshua and all the people. And I don't want you to miss that it's God who does it all. That should be obvious, but I want you to remember that revival and renewal does not start with you. You can't stir your own spirit. I can't stir it for you. No book or self-help system can do it. You can't even feel convicted and repent apart from an act of God. It has to be his word and his spirit at work in you. He must stir your spirit, and he must breathe new life and energy into your walk. No one else convicts. No one else stirs up. Revival is an act of God and God alone. Okay, so the revival is underway. Haggai gives us very specific dates in verse 15. He's carefully chronicling the events in this short book. Four four different times he gives a very specific date. Uh, He keeps cleaner records probably than the uh, Persians themselves. The message comes on the first day of the sixth month, and it takes the people about three and a half weeks to actually get to work. I don't know why it took that long, but repentance is sometimes a process, isn't it? Renewal and revival don't necessarily happen overnight. Uh, you know, you're not going to work off your dad bought in an instant, I know. Um, and the supplies probably didn't arrive immediately either, so it probably took some time to plan this thing. So yeah, about three weeks later, they get started. Uh, but by the end of the month, what we are seeing here is that they're firing on all cylinders, that they're back to rebuilding, they are working on the house of the Lord, and, and there's a revival kind of taking off, and the people are kind of fired up, and they're moving for the first time in years. And that's God's hand at work. And then about a month later, God comes and speaks again in chapter 2. I'm going to read a couple of verses here. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Well, that's real encouraging. Uh, Nothing to get you revved up quite like somebody walking by whatever you're doing, looking it over and saying, in effect, like, meh. Um, Here they are. They're working. And the effect of God's questions in verse 3 is to imply that this building is not exactly the Taj Mahal. In fact, it sounds like the very question we were asking a few weeks ago when we were in Ezra. Uh, these are rhetorical questions, right? Like, one of my favorite scenes in The Simpsons, you know, where Lisa asks Homer, like, do you know what rhetorical even means, Dad? And he's like, do I know what rhetorical means? Like, it's funny, it's a joke, you know. Anyway, for you kids, a rhetorical question is a question that doesn't need answering because the answer is so obvious that the question is meant almost sarcastically. You're asking the question to make the answer seem even more ridiculously obvious, right? And we do this all the time without knowing that it's called that. Uh, For instance, earlier this week, we were finishing dinner. Gwen asked me a rhetorical question. She said, Dad, what do you prefer? Food or fake flowers? She's like, I know the answer. I just want to hear you say it. I regret to say I did not dignify this question with an answer. But I immediately said, and Grace will attest, that I, I must use that in a sermon someday, and here it fit. You know. I went and wrote it down. The Lord works in mysterious ways. Well, the answer to God's questions are clear from what we had already read a few weeks ago in Ezra 3. Ezra 3, verse 12 and 13 says, Many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people couldn't distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. In other words, when God asks, is it not as nothing in your eyes? It's like, yes, it is precisely as nothing in their eyes. It's a big, fat nothing to the ones who remember the old temple. Because it looks dumpy. It's a cheap imitation. It is food versus fake flowers. It's a silly question. I think they're honestly kind of ashamed of it. But God's not done yet. It gets better. Verse 4. Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. When the work that we're doing in service to the Lord looks like a waste of time, God calls us to be strong. Now one might ask, why strong? Why not tell us to be encouraged? Why not tell us to be happy and to be joyful? Wouldn't that be the opposite of discouragement? But I think it's because not all hard times can be wished away with a smile. Put on a happy face is a charming song, but it's pretty lousy life advice. And not every ill can be medicated, and not every disappointment is purely mental or psychological. Sometimes the only way to endure disappointment is to be strong. That doesn't mean sugarcoating it. It means being honest about facts. It means buckling down, and it means facing these things head on with courage. Courage is being scared to death and saddling up anyway, so said John Wayne. So God says, yeah, this building, yeah, it kind of looks like crap, but be strong. Easier said than done. How can we be strong when our labor seems fruitless? It seems to be in vain. Well, he tells us at the end there of verse 4 and in the verse 5, it says, be strong, work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. So in those couple of verses there, we, we get three imperatives for God's people. He says to be strong, he says to work, and he says to fear not. Strength, labor, courage. And the justification for all of these lies in the fact that he is with us. Be strong, for I am with you. Work, for I am with you. Fear not, for I am with you. The very presence of God is what keeps us going in these times. That means that our motives cannot be based on what we can see. Our strength is not found in the results of our work and in the fruits of our labor. And our courage cannot be determined or rooted in how things look to the naked eye because that's not where our security and strength lies. Our strength, our ability to work, and our courage only makes sense if he is with us. And he will be. Why? Not because of us, but because he's faithful to his own promises. Uh, Our confidence begins and ends with his faithfulness. He goes all the way back to Exodus, the covenant that he made with Israel. This is 1,500 years ago. It's ancient for them. 1,500 years ago, I said this. It still holds because my promises stand. And I love that he says my spirit remains in your midst. He doesn't say my spirit will come back. It will remain. How cool is that? Because how tempted we are to think that the spirit has withdrawn when things are going poorly, and especially when we've screwed up and we feel like we deserve for him to leave. But God says his spirit remains because of his promises. And I love the contrast, too, between verse verse 12 of chapter 1 and verse 5 of chapter 2, because in one sense they, they now fear the Lord But as soon as they remember to fear the Lord, he tells them not to fear. I love that. Because when you fear the Lord, you can live fearlessly. It's a beautiful paradox. This is already very good news. But God's still not done. It gets better yet. He doesn't just tell his people what to do. He tells them what he's going to do next. Looking at the rest of the section, he says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, And this pile of rubble will one day outshine even the grandeur of Solomon's temple. Because all the wealth of the nations belongs to God. Now, we talked last week about how we tend to to work building our own houses. And we talked about the futility of our work and how we're trying to satisfy ourselves and we never really get there. The whole world is doing that. They're accumulating wealth that doesn't really belong to them, that's supposed to satisfy them, that it doesn't. And God says, I'm going to come along and shake it all. All the stuff that gives a sense of glory and honor to the temple, it all belongs to me. All I have to do is give the nations a shake, like shaking a fruit tree. Or you can shake a squirrel tree. I have squirrels, they get into my bird feeders on that evergreen tree that's next to my picnic table. And sometimes it's a sight to behold. I'll go out and I'll bark at them like I'm one of the dogs And I'll chase over to them. And sometimes they run, but sometimes they go up the tree thinking, like, now they're safe. And I like to go and give it a shake until they fall. It doesn't hurt them, unfortunately. They just get up and run. But anyway. But it's like that. It's like in the cartoons when they shake the guy upside down to get all the money out of him, right, out of his pockets. In verse 6, God says... Before that, that he's going to shake down creation itself, land and sea, heaven and earth. There's going to be pennies from heaven, just like Louis Prima said. In verse 7, he says, I'll shake down the nations. They belong to me too. The nations of the earth exist to glorify God, whether they know it or not. But eventually they will, because he's going to reclaim the glory from them. He'll shake them down and he'll fill his temple with his glory, because the silver is his the gold is his, and I might add that the stocks are his, the cryptocurrency, the paper money, the house, the car, the insurance policies, all the accumulated wealth that exists, both real and imagined, belongs to him and him alone. And one day, he is planning to call in the debt and demand what is rightfully his, and he plans to turn around and invest it in his house for his own glory but also wonder of wonders for our benefit. The crowning promise of the books is found, really, in in, in verse 9 there, that the glory of God's house will exceed their wildest dreams. The former glory will seem petty by comparison, but it's the final promise, I think, that caps everything. Almost like a throwaway line. In this place, I will give peace. Isn't peace what we're really looking for? And not just in the sense of the absence of war, but peace of mind, emotional peace, spiritual peace. Last week, Haggai says that the Jews were running around building their own houses. They're working constantly, but he says they have nothing to show for it. But I think that busyness is a symptom of a lack of peace. And we're Americans, so we can all relate to this. Most of what we do is somehow meant to give us peace and rest. That's what we're aiming for. And yet it's elusive. But God says that one day he will shake the heavens and reclaim all the stuff that we keep fighting for and working for. And he will give peace to the people in his house. We don't have to fight for it. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to work our fingers to the bone for it. It will be his free gift out of the riches of his glory and grace. We're called to be strong and to work and to do so without fear, but the prize is ultimately a gift that is freely given, a peace that passes understanding. So it gets better. God has done wonderful things, but he says it pales in comparison to what he's going to do Now, I'm not post-mill, so I don't expect to see all of this achieved fully in the here and now, but I I do believe, and I think we all do, in a, a future glory that will put to shame everything we've ever seen or known or imagined. There will be a peace that we cannot even fathom. In God's plans, everything will get better, and we may not see it in our present moment, but the future is bright no matter where you're standing. I want you to notice partly that the promise through Haggai here comes after they've been working for a month. He lets them do this for a month, feeling like they're getting nowhere and being discouraged in the work. God brings them encouragement after they've been slogging through it for a while. He doesn't give the promise of greater glory in advance, it's not a sign on bonus kind of thing. He makes them wait, and He does that sometimes. what does this have to do with us? Okay, you know, I, I picked this thing. Yeah, we, we are building shopping as a church, so that's, yeah, sure, that's part of it. Okay, but we're not in the exact same place as the returned exiles. What does this passage mean for us? Well, I think it helps to consider that God is not talking merely about a building. When he talks about, of greater glory coming down the road. He is not merely referencing Herod's renovations that are going to expand this place. That's not what he's getting at. And the peace he talks about is not merely an earthly political peace. And we know this because where's Herod's temple? <laughs> Herod's renovated, bigger, new and improved temple was leveled in 70 A.D. by the Romans. It still hasn't been rebuilt. So, in what sense is the latter glory greater? And how will he give peace in this place? Well, we have the advantage of being able to read ahead, don't we? We know that the temple is and always was a type and shadow of Jesus Christ himself, who was the true and greater temple. And the fullness of God dwells in him in a way that was not true of this temple building. The glory of this new physical temple really was at its greatest, not when Herod expanded it, but when a carpenter from Nazareth went and taught in the courtyard. And while the peace of Jerusalem, the political peace, was certainly not eternal, God literally gave us peace, eternal peace, in this very city, in this place. It was on this mountain that Jesus would atone for our sins. he did give us peace in that place and now by his spirit Jesus dwells in us it's not for nothing that he said behold I'm with you even to the end of the age he's the one who sends the spirit the spirit doesn't just dwell in our midst anymore he dwells within us we ourselves have become the temple and God says the glory of it now is greater than in the days of Solomon well that's quite a thing God's promise through Haggai is a foretaste of the gospel. What was true for the people in Haggai's day is more true for us. God is with us. God, all of his riches, the riches of his creation, he owns them. The riches of the nations have been pouring in since Pentecost, if you like. And if we are now his house, then his glory abides in us in some sense. In Christ, the riches are ours and he has given us peace. That's the gospel according to Haggai. God's promises in this chapter would have sounded ridiculous at the time. Haggai, I mean, they could have dismissed him as having just delusions of grandeur, right? But how like God, how like our God to make huge promises that seem unlikely to begin with and then go ahead and fulfill them in an even more glorious way? And make no mistake... Not one of these people working in this temple would have seen even this more limited version of the fruition of this. They are not going to see this happen in their lifetimes. You know, people die in season one. They don't get to see what happens in season two. And yet, they're partakers of God's grace. And the peace that he would give one day would apply to them as well. He's not promising that they're going to see it in their lifetime. He's letting them know that he's going somewhere with this and that their labor is not in vain. They have a share in the peace that is coming. It's kind of like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, that no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And that has application for us, doesn't it, beloved? because we all as Christians live to serve the Lord in our various ways. That's not limited to ministry. We all have jobs. We all have families. We have this here local church. And I'm willing to bet that sometimes your work looks like a pile of rubble and that your labors look as nothing in your eyes. Maybe your relationships that you struggle with look as nothing. Maybe your job looks as nothing. Maybe this church looks as nothing. You all can testify to discouragement, because I know I've heard it from you. Some of us in this room can very much relate to the people in Haggai's day, especially some weeks. And I think there's a temptation that we all have to be nostalgic about the good old days, I have a routine. I I told you I was down in Cape May a couple weeks ago serving as a chaplain. I have a routine every time that I serve down there at the end of my chaplaincy week. As we're wrapping up the week, at some point I will spend part of the last day on the beach by myself in tears. And this happens because it's in Cape May and because I grew up going to this place and everything else. And I, I end up thinking at the end of it, I think of all the people that I've lost. I think of people who aren't there. I think of things that aren't the same. And I think of the good old days and I'm sad. Feeling like life and sometimes my work are futile and how everything kind of breaks down and gets worse. But that's not really true. And God has to remind me of that on the beach every year. He's not finished, beloved. Not everything is good, but we know and we believe that in Christ, he works all things together for the good of those who love him and whom he has called. What you were seeing isn't the finished product. And there are many more chapters you haven't read, many more seasons you haven't seen, and you may not live to see them all come together, but they will. And you will have a part and a share in that glory when it comes, just as surely as the people of Haggai's day had a share in the glorious future of redemption. We have a part in his glorious work now, but we are looking forward to a future glory that is even greater. The latter glory will be better than the former. And not only that, the peace, that's real for today. In Haggai, God says he will give peace. But Jesus says in John 14, and this is active now, he says, Peace, I leave you. My peace, I give you. Not as the world gives, do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. The peace promised in Haggai was given on Calvary 2,000 years ago. The full glory is in the future, but Jesus is with us now. So hang in there. Let him stir you up. Be strong, work hard, and fear not. Discouragement doesn't have the final say, and your labor is not in vain. And even if this season sucks, it gets better. The ending will be good. It'll be completely satisfying, unlike so many stories. The future days will be better than the good old days. And in the meantime, the peace is yours now. And that's good news. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the, the, this book of Haggai, Lord, for this series of sermons that he delivered to your people In his day, oh Lord, so many of us, we are so busy, so much of the time, and driven by a lack of peace, driven by our anxieties and the pressures and the stresses that we we put on ourselves, that society puts on us. Lord, we pray that you would steer us away from all of that and help us to focus our eyes on Christ to see the finished work, Lord, and to know your peace, Lord, so that we can turn around and we can be strong and we can work hard and we can overcome fear because of what he has done. Knowing that you are with us. Lord, stir us up as you stirred up Zerubbabel and Joshua and the people of their day. Help us to know your peace and to work hard and to be strong and to be courageous. Teach us to trust you this week, Lord. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology. God from whom all blessings flow.